Incoming transmission from the Babylon Project. Babylon Project, our last best hope for trash. This is a rewatch podcast for Babylon 5 featuring two veterans of the show and one newbie. I am your newbie host, Justin, and here to help me along are my co-host, Jude and Anna. Jude, Anna, how you doing? A little loopy, but otherwise fine. I got a whole two and a half hours of sleep, and then I sat in the chair and got tattooed for four hours today. So I am in prime condition to record for another two plus hours tonight that's a wild ratio my friend i know right (laughs) so i i also slept like garbage so i don't know i don't know what it is this is going to be a good recording night i feel i feel strong about this (laughs) fear justin's face right now (laughs) all right so i have a question Mm -hmm. during sheridan's plan to commit a false flag operation for the to get uh, various entities to join his new alliance. What was a rejected idea that he had to try and get the no- the League of Dawn-Aligned Worlds to sign on to this? Well, I think his first idea would be to smuggle Rebo and Zudi back to the station from Earth um, and have them put on a show about how, like, it's important to have, like togetherness for a common goal and stuff like that but clearly clearly that didn't fly past uh past Ivanova. i like where your head is at here <laughs> rebo and Z- zudi are almost correct uh but while i think they are certainly a kind of crime they are not his favorite kind of crime and that is a war crime <laughs> Which is the only kind of crime that is appropriate for a false flag, which is why I think his solution would be to find the city closest in size, population, and uh, like relative function to San Diego on every planet that is in the Alliance and nuke it. Yeesh. Sheridan loves a war crime. And he loves nukes. He really is nuke happy. That that's my that's my theory. But we do know um, that he's not like killing civilians happy. So there's that. That's why it got vetoed. Someone pointed out that there are actual living people in those cities. Ah, uh, yeah. fair, fair. But I mean, you saw him, you know, at the breakfast table. Like <laughs> home slice is not not doing okay. It's remarkable how quickly Sheridan went from capable adult to looney tune without delen around to control his war crime base urges i think i think on that note um we should probably get into my summary of this this episode yeah so tonight we are covering two episodes episodes 13 and 14 of season four rumors bargains and lies and moments of transition anna take us away All right. So Rumors, Bargains, and Lies is written by JMS, of course, and directed by Mike Vehar. The always reliable. Yep. Done a lot of these episodes. So with Dulan and Sheridan taking separate vacations to sort out their respective governments, um, we've got a really nice delineation between the two plots here. Um, I'm going to do the Dulan plot first because Mimbari. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, on brand for me. So Delenn is back on Mimbar, and things are not going well. Uh, she and Lanier find the capital city in flames, and a large proportion of the religious caste hiding from the assault by the warrior caste. Delenn is, meanwhile, racked with guilt, since she's the one who broke the council and thus, like, arguably started all this chaos. As she is, you know, busy blaming herself, Lanier reminds her that all of this was foretold by Valen. Uh, to which Delenn responds by um, reminding him that, like, buddy, w- we knew Valen. Like, Valen was Sinclair, a regular dude, and all the prophecies are just, like, things that he witnessed or, like, studied. And he's gone now, and, like, we're on our own, buddy. So, uh, but, but Delenn has a plan to stop the fighting. 
Uh, she's going to gather all the other li- leaders of the religious caste, as well as our old friend Nerun, uh, who Delenn knows to be a jackass, but at least an honorable jackass, uh, aboard a war cruiser. Uh, once aboard, the religious caste leaders are less than thrilled to have Nerun and his entourage with them. Delenn first explains to Nerun why he's here. Delenn needs his help since they've they've never seen eye to eye, but he's always had the best interests of the Mimbari at heart, from her perspective. She explains that if either the warrior caste or the religious caste win this war outright, it will drastically destabilize their society, and she needs his help to resolve this with other means. Nerun offers at least tentative support. While Delenn is having her mysterious discussion with Nerun, the religious leaders become increasingly unsettled. They think that Delenn is here to surrender. Um, and they've managed to eavesdrop just enough to learn that Delenn thinks that their caste should not win the war. Their best plan to solve this problem is apparently to kill everyone on board by spreading a toxin through the ventilation system. Linear, our good sneaky boy, overhears their plans. And Nerun's entourage are also displeased by the situation, based on essentially the same logic as the rich religious leaders. Their plan, though, is just, just to murder him. It's a lot simpler. They fail at this task, and Delenn puts Nerun's care in the hands of the religious caste, with a speech about how foolish it would be to think that one's leader is about to betray you and take hasty action without knowing the full context of the situation, and how the religious leaders would definitely never do anything like that, because they are loyal and dependable. The religious <laughs> leaders immediately realize that they have fucked up and simultaneously realize that it is too late to remove the toxin from the ventilation system. But they did not count on our good boy Lanier, who crawls through the vents and disables the device, saving everyone at immense risk to himself. We cut to Nerun, assuring Delenn that Lanier is being cared for by Nerun's personal physician. Uh, this is presumably because toxic gas inhalation is like more in the warrior caste than the religious caste wheelhouse. I mean, okay, that just tells me that the Midbari are pretty boring in their religious uh, rituals <laughs> because it's just like... Yeah, apparently huffing yeah. is uh, not a thing that happens in religious in Minbari cults. Yeah, the Minbari have never heard of blazing it. <laughs> I mean, unless we're talking about innocent planets. <laughs> well, they, well, but but they Zing. have they have that whole that whole chamber filled with like mysterious fog, though. Yeah, apparently. Apparently, it's not a toxic fog. Mysterious fog that gives you visions. Yeah. Yeah, that might just be like a light hallucinogen. Side side note, how long can you spend in the mysterious fog before there are side effects? Is there like a Surgeon General's warning (laughs) on the side of that chamber? Like, If you have have a heart condition, uh, migraines, you know, please do not. Yeah. If you experience... Uh, uh, You cannot enter the chamber if you are taking an MAOI. If you experience an erection for more than six hours, yeah. <laughs> All right. Sorry. Continue. If you were a human who converted to a Midbar, who, who, who uh, changed species to Midbar, you could not use the fog room. Please, please discuss this with your doctor before entering. Yeah. Must be this tall to ride the, the smoke-filled chamber. <laughs> so Lanier ultimately recovers, albeit minus a chunk of lung, which is fun. And te- tells Delenn um, that, oh, he just he just smelled the leak as he happened to pass. And, you know, that, that just just happened. Uh, and then there's mm-hmm. absolutely no chance of it being sabotaged by the Whoopsie warrior doodle. cast. The religious leaders ask Lanier why he covered for them. Um, and he claims that he couldn't shatter Delenn's perception of them as being apparently like she she perceives them as being better than they apparently actually are. All this concluded, Nerun leaves and promptly sends a message to his cast leader. He's got the religious cast's plans, and their victory is all but assured. Nerun, you absolute rat fucker. Is he a rat fucker? That's a good question. Only time will tell. Back on the station, Sheridan has apparently gone cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. We first see him cackling to himself in the corner of the station mess while the other members of the command staff eat breakfast. It's like 
it's like when you're on the train and there's that person watching a video on their phone who just will not stop laughing to themselves. Um, Ivanova, Ivanova gripes out loud about how hard it will be to get the League on board with this, like, White Star Coast Guard plan. Uh, and Sheridan promptly jumps up with a manic gleam in his eye, ordering Marcus to take a few White Stars, head to a specific sector, and wait for orders. He doesn't know why he's sending Marcus there, but he'll figure it out. The look in his eyes is a very specific look. And it's the same one I get when right before every DM I've ever had, it feels fear. (laughs) And it's when I have a dumbass idea, but I don't want to say it out loud because the DM will tell me no. (laughs) Yeah. As somebody who DMs for Jude on the reg, I don't say no, but I just... Hold on, let me me summon this. (sighs) Yeah. Yeah. It's... (laughs) It's that moment. There we of, go. That's about the noise that I make usually when I hear the idea. Yeah, it's that moment of like chaos goblin incoming is <laughs> is what I is is what I see in John's face in that yeah, scene. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So John's next stop is to Londo's quarters, where he asks Londo to deny that there are any white stars currently patrolling Centauri space. Londo is confused because last episode, uh, didn't he like work really hard to convince Londo to allow the ships there because their presence was supposed to be an example to the league? Um, Sheridan just grins and asks Londo to trust him. Upon leaving, Sheridan is then approached in the hall by the Drazi ambassador who has uh, questions about the White Star fleet. Um, Sheridan staunchly refuses to comment, leaving the confused Drazi to go find Londo, who also responds with a denial that the ships are even there, uh, as well as, you know, some insults. The Drazi ambassador gathers together the other members of the League, and they huddle in the corridor, clearly worried about whatever new threat is making even the Centauri so worried. Franklin then just happens to run across them, and announces that he is requesting additional units of blood for each of their species to add to the station stockpile. Oh, for, for no particular reason, of course, just, just in case. <laughs> in case of emergencies. Marcus, meanwhile, ended up being ordered to destroy a bunch of asteroids uh, before heading back to the barn, which he finds very frustrating and confusing. He does as ordered, though, and Susan gets her own unusual request. She is supposed to specifically note that nothing at all happened in the sector where Marcus was destroying asteroids during her news broadcast. This is the last piece needed to fuel the League's paranoia. Uh, and they, they investigate the area and find evidence of a one-sided battle and conclude that the White Star ships were fighting an invisible enemy. Zathras, please put a very dramatic dun-dun-dun over that moment. <laughs> The League calls a council meeting and presents Sheridan with their demands. He must supply them with the same defense against this new invisible enemy that he's provided the Centauri. He balks at this. Oh, gosh, they're really asking for a lot. After all, it'll it'll stretch that white star fleet awfully thin. Uh, In order to convince Sheridan to be on board with this, they offer him that... Well, in return, they'll support the White Star fleet uh, in case of any sort of major threat arising. Uh, Sheridan accepts this compromise and heads out of the council chamber and manages to keep his shit together until he reaches the elevator, at which point he just goes, whoop, basically. Such a white dad. (laughs) It's it is really just like my dad has literally made that noise before. I love that Sheridan has gone completely ding-dang-dumb. <laughs> Sheridan is like, I I need a way to do this. I could use the diplomacy route. Or I could, uh, I could construct an on-the-fly false flag operation to trick no- numerous governments into allies. Al- into, into- <laughs> Not governments, allies. Allies, these are my friends with whom I have just won a war. I will 
lie to their face and manipulate them into backing me up so that when I attack Earth, they are covered. Well, and it's not even that at this point. It's it's just like because he wants to establish the White Star Coast Guard and he knows yeah. that like none of them are going to want the White Stars in their space. So he's like, yeah. you know, how do I how do I get them on board with having protection? It's a total like 10 steps when three will do thing. He's but, just like, I am so fucking sick of diplomacy. How, how can I do what? What's a fun way to do this where I don't have to talk to anybody? It's like I could spend 15 hours in council meetings and get like half of them on board or I can construct an elaborate scheme creating invisible enemies on their borders. I mean, it's not even that complex of a plan. No, it's not that it's it's that complex of a plan. It's just that it's like, it's more complicated than just like diplomacy. It's really, it's really just hinging on Londo being Londo. Yeah. It's, it's just like Londo, just be a mysterious dick. Franklin, I need you to ask like two, like, Funky questions. And Marcus, go blow up some asteroids. I love that Marcus is the one who's like the most pissed off by all this. Yeah, he's just like, can you tell me? No, no. Yeah. I. It is like Deled leaves and Sheridan tur- turns into gatekeep gaslight girl boss. <laughs> yeah, it's honestly, it's I love it so much just yeah. because it is like it's literally the most in character thing that Sheridan does because he's like, I don't have a conspiracy theory to deconstruct. I'll make my own conspiracy theory <laughs> with blackjack yeah. and hookers. Yeah, I have been behind the curtain. I have seen the deepest secrets. Time to be the conspiracy. Yeah. It's so great. And I just... It's such a good opener to the episode, too, because, like, everybody else is having a perfectly normal breakfast and, like, you know, discussing work, but, like, you know, being yeah. there's some camaraderie there. And he's just there, like, backed up against a wall, like, in a corner, just going, like, he's, and he's just, like, <laughs> sitting. Yeah. He's just, like, like a so goddamn weird. goblin in the corner, giggling like a manic freak bag. Oh, my God. It's such a good scene. And then, and then Ivanova's like, do you have something to share with the class? Yeah. Which is a great line. And then Franklin's line, which I absolutely hate that he has the best line in that scene where he's like, if this is what he's like, is if this is what Sheridan is like after three days without Delenn, what's he going to be like if she stays, if she stays away longer or something to that effect? (laughs) And I'm just like, God, fuck you, Franklin. That is, that is exactly what everybody watching the, the show in this moment is thinking. And I hate that you, I hate that Franklin of all people gets to say that line. He's just got, gone so unhinged. God, yeah. I, it's just so true. Like, she's been gone three days, and he has gone completely off the deep end. It's such a wild episode. It really is. And it's only going to, yeah, and it's only going to get worse. And we get Naroon. Yeah. yeah. God, I, so I will say that I have always liked Naroon as a character, even when he's acting like a butthead. He's like Bester. He's a good character. Yes. He's a lot like Bester in that, like, even when you don't like what he's doing, you can respect him as a character because he, 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 he's a great character. And he also does have like integrity. Even when he's being a shithead, he's got, he's like got integrity. I mean, he's not like Bester in that way. No, not like, well, he's (laughs) like Bester in that he's a good character. Yeah. And then Naroon is like, whatever he's doing, he's got integrity. He is a Minbari warrior the way they should be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why Delenn respects him. Yeah. We shall see whether that respect is uh, is uh, a Earned. good idea or not. Yeah. I, I really like Naroon in this episode. Yeah. I also think it's wild that Lanier is like, I have to preserve Delenn's idealism, which seems wildly misplaced to me, considering that she started a fucking genocide. Can I propose an alternative? Yeah. Lanier is lying to them because he knows that because he knows that Delenn will just fucking murder them all. <laughs> he's lying to both. He's lying to both sides. Oh my god! He's protecting everybody involved because he doesn't want Delenn to just fucking knee drop the entire religious caste leadership. <laughs> it's 
That's, okay. That's like, I think this is like, no, it's just silly and just like a little weird. Like, I, I get to sh- w- like wave it away so we don't have to explain it. But this is my personal theory of like no, why that I, is. I'm, I'm 100% on board. That is, a, that, is an ex- that is headcanon accepted right there. We know that Lanier has like a thing for Delenn because he admitted yeah. that to Marcus. I think that the way that he perceives Delenn and Delenn's emotions is like not actually accurate. Yeah. Yeah, he, he definitely idealizes and idolizes Delenn for sure. Can, can I get on my bullshit for a minute? Absolutely. Please. Okay. I mean, what the hell else is this podcast for? <laughs> Listen, I get to, this is the, this is what I'm like, they referenced Okay, so when La- when Sheridan goes to speak with Londo, Londo is commenting on the mis- the mysteries of the human race, including Rita, Rebo, and Zudi. Who we've seen. Have we? Yes. No, we haven't yet. No, we haven't seen Rebo and Zudi yet. No. Oh. Justin has no idea okay, well, what, that, what, we'll keep what that we're in secret. for with Rebo and Zudi. To which, when La- to which Sheridan says... What? They're fun. They're hilarious. And Londo says, are they? I'm so sorry. <laughs> to which I cannot think of anything like, like, Jesus Christ, the shadow, like, John's already nuked himself, but you murdered him. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. I feel like this is when you're you're watching TV with your parents and they stop on CBS to watch like whatever the whatever NCIS it is, and they're like, it's so entertaining and dramatic, and you're just like, oh, <laughs> okay, I'm gonna play a game on my phone now, like, <laughs> and it's the fact that it's Londo roasting him. It's so I mean, good. Granted, we've established that that Centauri drama involved is basically like. Porn, so I get it that you know there's no dicks involved. Londo's completely uninterested, but still, it's it's a great roast and it's a great scene. Captain, you will forgive me if I appear a bit slow. I have studied your race quite a bit, and there are still several aspects of your psychology I don't understand. A place called Winchester Mansion with stairs that go nowhere, something called country and western. And the less said about the comedy team of Rebo and Zuti, the better. However, you don't like Rebo and Zuti? <laughs> They're hysterical. Are they? I'm sorry. I apparently mistook you for a human with some taste and sensibility. After their last broadcast, everywhere I went on the station, someone was going, Zuti, zoot, zoot, at me. That was me. a great routine. I didn't get it. Not my problem. My point, if you will allow me to make it is that there is much about the human mind that I don't understand. So perhaps you will explain to me how allowing your ships to patrol the border of Centauri space will inspire the rest of the League to do the same if I can't even tell them that we are doing it. Lando, trust me. The the burn, like, it's not just, it's not just, oh, I'm sorry. It goes on. No, and his tone is very good, too. Uh, That's such a good scene overall. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. The other thing that Londo mentions when uh, describing the eccentricities of the human race is Winchester Mansion. Now, for all of you who did not grow up in, in the South Bay of California or might be from overseas or something or just don't happen to know about this, the Winchester Mansion known more popularly as the Winchester Mystery House, um, is the originally, like, it, it, it is a manor that is it that it resides in now San Jose, California, but, like, southwest border. So it's almost Campbell, but we're not going to talk about that. Um, <laughs> uh, but it is, it was the residence of Sarah Winchester, who was the wife of John Winchester, the guy who built all the guns. Sarah Winchester uh, bought some land, started building a house there in, uh, let's say, 1886. Construction continued on this house until her death in 1922. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that sounds, like, that sounds like my parents' house. Yeah. It is huge. 
It's it's sort of like a gorgeous house, but it's also huge and fucking bananas. Yeah, you're it leaving is... out the fact that this house is that the woman was beloved by every nut job, wackadoo, and spiritualist within a hundred miles because <laughs> this woman did seances like like we do elevensies and. She, anytime someone was like, this room is cursed, she's like, okay, build a fucking staircase into nowhere. That way the ghost can't get out. Oh, yeah. The house is riddled with bizarre fucking constructions and stuff to try and like fuck around with ghosts and things. It's not called the mystery house because it's like got gothic architecture. It's called the mystery house because the architect was doing acid and the woman paying <laughs> for it thought that she was haunted. Wasn't wasn't there like a B movie about this a few years back? Yeah, with Helen Mirren. Wild. Um, back the truck up. Helen Mirren was in the Winchester Mystery House B movie. I don't know if it was actually a B movie, but all the previews made it look like a B movie. Yeah. Um... The only fact that the only fact I like more than that is that Vin Diesel taught what's her name to play D and D. Yeah, Helen. Um, yeah. Uh... Yeah. Yeah, on the on the on the uh, set of Chronicles of Riddick, um, but yeah, it's it is a huge house. It is like it's marketed as like one of the most haunted houses in America. I, I'm not a paranormalist, so yeah, whatever. Um, it, it is noted for its architectural in, uh, eccentricities, including most famously a, a a doorway that opens up into opens up. 10 feet above the kitchen sink. See, okay. So I feel like we've discovered the reason why this place is haunted. Because these are all like major architectural hazards, right? So it's clearly haunted by the souls of all the contractors who died when like falling (laughs) out of a door that opens six feet above above the kitchen sink. It's wild. Um, I don't know. Like, I don't know. It's like, it's, it is a... It's a, it, yeah, it is. It is a California historical landmark. Yeah, it's also a U.S. landmark. You can do tours there. It's fun. I haven't been in like twenty years, but it's great. You can do nighttime. Yeah, on tours. in uh in October as well as every Friday the thirteenth, um, they do a nighttime flashlight tour, um, which is a little bit more expensive, but it's something that I've always wanted to do, and I'm probably going to do after the pandemic. Nice. It's the one nice thing about. San Jose's local history. Um, the only other thing are we have are tech billionaire douchebags and, um, you know, haunting, uh, like Winchester. And the cool. sharks. That's not Which a historic, nice thing. It's a sad thing. That's not a historical thing. Historically shitty at, at getting cups. Well, that's, and that's not, that's not a, <laughs> like, that's not an actual part of San Jose's history. It's just a team that exists here. I beg differ. You can tell the history of San Jose without the without the San Jose Sharks. Anyway, uh, yes, the Winchester Mystery House is fucking great, and having it name dropped in a fucking B five episode is was so bizarre. I remember the first time I heard that, and I was just I nearly fell out of my seat because it was like people know about that fucking place, like <laughs> like other humans outside of this town know about the fucking Winchester mystery house, much less a goddamn alien. <laughs> so I do also like what, like, because I have like an affinity for it because it's spooky from San Jose. Uh, in 2004, there was a musical done in San Jose called the haunting of Winchester, uh, which was about Sarah Winchester and the various ghosts that were, that were killed by her husband's guns haunting the manor. It's grateful. It's actually a love story. Um, <laughs> it was delightful. It had a three-story set, which was bizarre and amazing. Um, it's wild. Yeah. Yeah. I did not expect to get this much content out of the Winchester Mystery House. I got to tell you. The, the, like, the, con- the, Winch- the content Winchester Mystery House is like a content machine. Yeah, no. This was the tangent that was like, I had a, like, a freak out like when I heard this in the episode. I was just like, okay, I get to talk about this because it's the what it's it's my weird historical bullshit corner. Um everybody, <laughs> go go to like go go to like a Google image search and just look it up. You'll get to see all this weird stuff. I just can't wait yep. until you meet Rebo and Sudi. I I am going to bet that Justin is going to be really angry. Yeah, it's going to be great. That's my bet. And it's coming up, too. Oh, yeah. Relatively soon. Uh, okay. Back to the episode? Are we done? Yeah, are we done with rumors, bargains, and bibbly babble? 
I have one more serious thing, which is that, like, so I, I love the Mimbari. Like, I'm on the record as loving Mimbari quite a bit. Quite a bit. But mm-hmm. I'm just, like, over halfway through season four of the show, I'm just really fed up with the, the, the whole, like, Mimbari cryptic secret bullshit. <laughs> like, if there had been literally a shred of communication throughout this entire episode between Delenn and, like, literally one of the religious cast leaders that she had along for the ride here. There would have been, like, like, Lanier would still have that chunk of lung. I was just going to say, at a minimum, Lanier would have all of his lung. Like, I get that you need to keep your secret plan secret um, and, like, not have, you know, whatever's going to happen in the next episode be leaked to the broader Mimbari mm-hmm. people. But like, there's no there's no reason for literally only the two of them to know what's up. And like, if it if she really just wanted to have a secret meeting with Nerun, like why have all of the religious leaders tag along? I, I think that's because the Mimbari don't know how to do anything. <laughs> properly. Yeah, I think I think we talked about this last time. I think it's because having stepped out of the circles of their thousand year traditions the Minbari are like a bunch of toddlers that that just slammed a big tall c- cup of chocolate milk and are suddenly on a, a, a new playground and are just completely overloaded with stimulus and are just bouncing off the walls. But Delenn should know better. Delenn? I love Delenn. <laughs> but Delenn expects her people to be the best version of themselves. And they are. They just ain't. They are not. She like she has been so bumfuzzled by the fact that this civil war is happening at all, and every time throughout and throughout the course of this series, every time Aminbari acts like a shithead, she's just like, "Oh my gosh!" And in the background, Lanier is like, "Uh huh." <laughs> like the only, the only Minbar that Lanier thinks is perfect is is Delenn. Yeah. Every other Minbar, Lanier is like, "Yep." Shithead. Like, like what yeah. are you expecting? I I wanna <laughs> That's my thoughts on that subject. Yeah. yeah. But like, come on, come on, man. Like, give at least like some some hint because like Lanier would have still had that chunk of lung and wouldn't have had to suffer by He's crawling through the it. Jeffrey's tubes. <laughs> I do want to point out one funny thing, which is um I love that we get to see a Vibari fighting pike. And the, like when the when the, the when the traitor opens it up, it is the most menacing swoop. <laughs> <laughs> it's just really funny in that scene. I'm just like, this is you know, I think this is like overall, it's like this is a very forgettable episode. I think, but it's fun. Yeah, it's a setup episode. It's yeah. a setup other episode. than other than John's manic bullshittery. Yeah. I mean the the war crime is like like it's not war crime the 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 CIA op um, <laughs> that is going on here is just the like in, inter, interstellar gaslighting. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm uh, no, it's not technically gaslighting, but it's like you know, it's a false flag op. Okay, so yeah. I'm gonna put down a thing here that I put in the chat. I think that well, like we're we're gonna go back to like my season four opener where I said. Hey, you know, I think John's going to form the Federation. Mm. So recently I have been rereading uh, Benjamin Percy's X-Force, which is the the current iteration of the X-Men title, uh, where on the muted island nation of Krakoa, they last like three days before making a CIA. I think that's what Sheridan's going to do. Like his third day off is he's like, I need to kill someone. I'm going to make the CIA and he's going to hand it over to like Bester. He's going to like ask Bester like, hey, do you want to run my CIA? And, he, and Bester's going to be like, oh, Captain, I couldn't. Murdering people for a paycheck? I would do that <laughs> shit for free. <laughs> he, will, he will be offended with it as he's like, he's like saying like, oh, and what sort of liberties can I impute on? We shall see. I like that's my theory. That's my theory. It's an interesting theory. Yeah. The the other thing that I really like in this episode is I do I do like that little conversation that we have between Delenn and Lanier where they're they're talking about Valen and like 
the context yes. shift between like that Valen is Sinclair and Sinclair is Valen. Because like okay, that Valen is a dude who they both knew who like an ordinarily an ordinary dude who they've seen like all sweaty and like being a dumbass. Mm-hmm. But like is also still a meaningful religious f- figure for the Mimbari. Yeah. Like that is there's this duality. Yeah, for Lanier it clearly has retained he's clearly retained some religious awe, but it, it seems that for for Delenn, at least in this moment, that religious awe has been tempered somewhat. Yeah. And and although them- we're going to see that that's not going to be consistent, uh, a consistent portrayal. Yeah. But seeing I, I enjoy seeing the two of them like navigate that particular cognitive dissonance um yeah. throughout no, I think it's really interesting. the rest of the show. Yeah. I think Valen is sh- I mean, I'm on board s- standing Sinclair, and I think he's that arc of him and becoming uh Valen and that whole thing is super interesting and cool. And I think I, I wish we dealt with it more directly more often. Yeah. All right, moments of transition. Let's let's transition to that. Oh, very nice. Take us away. All right, episode 14, Moments of Transition, written by JMS and directed by Tony Dow, who I think is a new one for us. I think that's a new name. Yeah. Uh, our episode opens with Garibaldi being wakened in the night from his fascist sleep by a call from his new boss, Edgar's who shows all the signs of a healthy personality by claiming to work 24 hours a day and thus having no respect for his employees' work-life balance. Not at all sociopathic. Jude, you can't relate to that at all, can you? No, not at all. (laughs) Uh, He has a not-at-all-dangerous, totally-fine package he wants snuck through customs. This is not happening right this moment and definitely merited a call in the middle of the night. Sheridan, meanwhile, is also not sleeping, or is not sleeping, uh, worried about Delenn, and not at all placated when he calls CNC to ask if his message to Minbar has gotten through. And the patronizing CNC officer says he's sure Delenn is fine. No one ever got hurt in a civil war, after all, especially not a polarizing leader. On Minbar, we see though he's right. She's fine. She's just holed up in a bombed out temple. And Lanier says they've got one more day until the warrior cast levels the city for the good of their people. Totally fine. Uh, In customs, we see Alan way below his pay grade working through a large crowd trying to corral them when he spots Garibaldi being shady as fuck in full view of all the security personnel. Jesus Christ, Garibaldi, I thought they hired you because you were good at this. He's literally standing in the open with a weird package off to one side. It... He could not be more transparent about what bullshit he's up to. Uh, Just before Alan can attempt to apprehend Garibaldi, however, Bester shows up. Uh, He banters with Alan or really just sort of like destroys Alan standing up three or four times. Alan is not an intellectual (laughs) match to to Bester's rapier sharp wit and uh, basically just stands there with his jaw hanging down. But by the time he dispenses with Bester, who is on station for a personal business this time, not to uh, harass Sheridan, Garibaldi is gone. Alan does manage to catch up to him and confronts him about the package. In true narcissist fashion, he manages to change the subject and make it all about himself by becoming a defensive shit wagon when Alan asks what someone like Edgar's wants with him. Meanwhile, Lita discovers that now that she isn't employed by an alien government, finding work without the backing of an oppressive fascist regime is hard to do. The fact that she doesn't work for the station is confusing and super shitty, but I guess that's a better story. Uh, later, she's having a meal at a bar watching Ivanova's Voice of the Resistance when it becomes clear that Bester, what Bester's business is. Her. He points out exactly what we've all been thinking. She's getting the short end of the stick. Her face says it all. She knows that she's getting screwed. He offers to put her back on the Psycor payroll, and all she has to do is wear the gloves and the badge, pay her 10% tithe, and sign over power of attorney so that when she's dead, he gets her body. Lita soundly rejects him. 
Garibaldi later is mean is taking dubious jobs from the mentally unsound when Lita shows up and asks for a job, making it clear she's truly desperate. Garibaldi used to be no one's first choice and very often people's last choice doesn't seem offended. And even though he doesn't trust telepaths and says so right, right to her face, this feels racist. He offers to take her on provisionally to piss off Bester, if nothing else. Speaking of the snarky telepath, and he shall appear, Bester saunters up just then, uh, but he's just there to cause trouble. He says Garibaldi isn't worth his time now and walks off. But as he's going, Lita suddenly turns and tells Garibaldi that Bester scanned him. Garibaldi predictably flips his absolute goddamn shit and attacks Bester, though not very effectively as security arrives almost immediately. They must they must have Garibaldi just like under surveillance at all times at this point. Wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Security risk. Yeah, absolutely. That night, Garibaldi is awoken late once again, and Edgar tells him that he will not tolerate a telepath in his employ, even indirectly. It's fire her or quit. The next day, Bester smirks in the foreground, while in the background, Lita looks at Garibaldi in shock and fury and storms away. He obviously made his choice. Over his personal log narration, we see we see Lita has signed the power of attorney and tearfully is putting on the gloves and badge. This scene fucking sucks, and we're going to talk about it in the discussion. Yeah. Because everything about this part of the episode sucks. Meanwhile, on Minbar, Narun is meeting with the leader of his, cla- of his cast, Shakiri, no relation to Shakira, who is a real soggy sag- sack of dicks. We all die, he says, when Narun very gently suggests that the cost of the Civil War is getting a bit much. It's just a matter of timing. They will be reborn into the next generation of Minbari, perhaps even as warrior cast. That last, he adds with a smirk. My dude, reincarnation does not justify war crimes. He pivots into utilitarianism and then into the usual warrior cast bitching about the Earth-Minbari war. I don't know how someone who can so tremendously misread Narun's face can end up the leader of an entire cast because Narun is not particularly well hiding his distaste for Shakira. I mean, Shakiri. <laughs> he Shakiri, is, <laughs> he is like plainly unamused by this guy's snarking. Elsewhere, Delenn summons Lanier to tell him that she is ready to surrender to the warrior cast as Shakiri expected. Narun informs his leader and tells him about the preparations he has set up. The, re- the surrender will take place on the planet at a temple used in the ancient times before Valen to adjudicate disputes between the castes. Plus, it has an AV closet, so they can record the proceedings and broadcast it to the rest of Minbar. Shakiri likes the symbolism and, again, is totally oblivious to the pay no attention to the hand with a coin in it written all over Narun's face. When Narun asks what to do about Delenn after, Shakiri very calmly says they're going to kill her. I mean, not like in so many words, but he's like, yeah, when her ship goes back to B5, we'll blow it up. No big deal. Bing, bang, boom. Very, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, in the temple, Delenn gives a despairing linear instructions for after, but tells him the day is not yet over before entering a rotunda to meet with Shakiri. When demanded, Delenn states the religious caste surrenders, but before Shakiri can really celebrate, Delenn gets her speech on, which is a fucking mistake. <laughs> you don't ever let Delenn get her speech on. Seriously. Uh, this is like somebody like, but talking is a free action. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and she reveals what Narun had in his other hand. The temple is the site of an ancient tradition for determining leadership, the Starfire Wheel. The leaders of the feuding castes would stand within the focused light from above, and the one who was willing to sacrifice themselves elevated their clan to supremacy. Shakiri is, frankly, flabbergasted, uh, did not apparently pay attention in history class, and clearly fucked. You don't get into a self-sacrifice contest with Delenn, nor a piety one. She steps into the light of the Starfire Wheel without hesitation and asks Shakiri if he will follow her in. He tries to refuse, tries to back out, and then Narun steps up and uses his own words dismissing the deaths of the religious caste against him. He shames him into stepping into the fire. 
but he is a little bitch about it. Is that okay to say? Or is is are we allowed to call people little bitches still? I think I think I think that works. Well, he's a little bitch about it. He whines for like eight seconds, tells her that we can leave together, and then promptly dives out crying. Literally crying. I'm not exaggerating. Like he's whimpering like like a frightened kitten the whole time. Delenn just stands there with her hands raised. And Naroon asks Lanier why she isn't leaving the circle. That was their deal when he came to her ship. Naroon, however, has a moment where he realizes that she's going to let herself be vaped for the good of their people and is not okay with that. He goes into the light and throws her, more or less chucks her out of it to Lanier and then stands there in the fire in her place and says that he is rescinding his membership in the warrior cast and says that his his heart's calling is with the religious cast uh just as the starfire wheel opens all the way and he is vaporized <laughs> back on the gray council ship delenn barely able to stay on her feet and with a wicked sunburn enters the chamber to speak to the whole of the minbari people she restores the Grey Council, but in a change, she only summons two each from the warrior and religious castes and four from the worker. Uh, the worker caste, who have traditionally been caught between the warrior and religious, now have supremacy on the council, uh, while, the work, while the warrior and religious caste will advise. The ninth place is held empty in memory of Naroon for one who is to come. And I have some fucking thoughts <laughs> about that line. Uh, in the closer, Ivanova barges into Sheridan's quarters furious with footage of an Earth Force cruiser destroying transports carrying 10,000 civilians. Sheridan says, that's enough. It's time to take the war to Earth. Ivanova's face when she, she, when she sees Sheridan's sudden furious resolve to just go declare war on Earth is like the biggest, oh fuck, <laughs> whoops, in, in, that I've, uh, I've seen in a while. And that's our episode. Okay, first we need to get this right off the table. Why the fuck do the Bombari have like an a ancient judgment death laser? Why wouldn't it they? Is, it, dude, it is the... Oh, okay, yes, why wouldn't they for <laughs> yeah, one? No, and for I guess two, why not? The Minbari, it is absolutely the Minbari would have that. It is the most Minbari thing. It's a fucking death laser and it's... It's a self-sacrifice death laser. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's I mean, the most Minbari thing they've shown in a long time. Yeah. I actually, I legitimately love the Starfire. I love wheel. it. I love it. It is it's such perfect. a perfect piece of Minbari world building that like back before Valen got them to like work together, they were like, they basically had like chest beating self vaporization <laughs> contests to determine who was cool <laughs> enough to lead them. I want to know like, what was the minimum level of like feud required for the Starfire wheel? <laughs> like, were there lawsuits resolved by the Starfire wheel? <laughs> yeah, corporate tax rates. Beautiful. Okay, so that line, I have to talk about this line. For the one who is to come. Where is Delenn, who just last episode basically said prophecy is horseshit because Valen only knew about the future because he came from the future. It suddenly... Oh, yeah. Setting down her own prophecies? See, this is, yeah. this is the thing, though, because Delenn simultaneously knows that prophecy is horseshit, but then if prophecy is horseshit, then anybody can make it. And she knows that the Mimbari fucking eat that shit up. Yeah. I, this is what's crazy about Delenn. Delenn is the most Minbari of all time, while being not all that Min, not the most Min, like the least Minbar of all min, living Minbar. She is extraordinarily pious she's the leader of the religious caste and is extraordinarily pious and yet is also borderline agnostic at this point having been disillusioned as to their religious as to valence true nature she's such a wild contradiction and and also after having been dicked around by them for the crime of fulfilling prophecy yeah, yeah. she's such an interesting contradiction in terms of like her because of her role in prophecy and her role in the in the end of the war she has this weird place where she is 
the most and least Minbari in almost every situation and every aspect of her life. It's fucking wild. What else do I have about? Oh yeah, I fucking love Narun in this episode. He's so his every scene he has with Shakiri, you just are like, how are you so dumb that you do not see that Narun is just waiting, is in his mind picturing you either bitching out at the Starfire wheel or like he's just he's imagining all the scenarios in which you're going to fuck this up in his head while you're talking. How do you not see that? Yeah, it's right on his face. He has no duplicity. It's right there on his face. I do think this is like a fantastic episode to end his arc. Yeah. 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 You know that that he's he's come so far from the first time we saw him in season one. Yeah, where he's like disappearing a dead body just to like make just to like try and drum up a conflict. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I love that he at the end, like the reason Delenn respects him is that above all else, he cares about their people. Yeah. They may not agree, but above all else, he's always put the good of their people first. And it raises some interesting questions about like, what is that saying about the warrior cast that like Narun, who was arguably the best of them, like quits, <laughs> you yeah. know, forsakes his membership to be the religious, to be religious cast at the last moment so that he, he can, you know, secure the primacy of the religious cast and Delenn's ability to shape the the role the to shape the Minbari government going forward. Oh, and what a dick is Shakiri too? Like <laughs> such a bag of shit. Oh, oh he's the worst. God, it's it's like he has like big make Minbar great again energy. Yeah. He even kind of looks like it too. Yeah. I mean, he does have like a, a speech about how they're going to build back better. Yeah, and how they're going to, like, throw everything out and how the religious cast have to learn the hard lessons that sometimes you just got to do stuff for practical reasons. Yeah, how, like, and and there's that, like, the thing where, like, he's confronted by the Starfire, Starfire wheel and he's like, no, there's other ways to resolve this. And it's like, you the, the line of, like, you should have thought of that before you tore apart our people. Yeah. Well, and then he's like, and and he clearly he's like, what the fuck is this? And Delenn is like, you didn't want you wanted to do things the ancient way. Like, <laughs> yeah, like and that that meshes up so well with his like big talk of like, oh, I'm going to rebuild our cities that I just destroyed. Yeah. God, he's the worst. Uh, my only complaint with uh, Shakiri is that. He's only in this like one episode, so we only get to hate him for like fifteen minutes before he gets uh, yeah shamed and no doubt driven out of Minbari uh, society. Yeah, I feel like this would have been better. Not we don't have a ton of like warrior cast villains at this point remaining, yeah. but I feel like it would have been a lot better with somebody who'd had like at least a little bit of screen time. Yeah. Ah well. Do we want to talk about how shafted Lita is by just like everything? So I want I, I do want to talk yeah. about this because I think that like Lita's position is exactly showing us where. Okay, I don't want to put this in. I'm not like saying like this is like a reflection on JMS as a person, but it's definitely a product of the time that it was written, where. The thing of like, you can save the world, you know, you can be part of this whole thing, but we're not going to pay your rent. You still have to be used, you have to continue to be useful to society for you to have a room on the station is the most like 90s neoliberal shit possible. It's, it's just horse shit. Yeah. I, maybe it is 90s neoliberal, but it's. I mean, it's, it's, it's that ideology. It's that ideology. It's like the least, the least that they could do is like comp her room. And let her eat in the officer mess, right? Yes, exactly. She literally saved all of their fucking lives like eight times over. And it seems like it would be convenient to have a telepath on call. Like, yeah, they use her all the time for like unsavory shit. So why are they dicking her around on the size of her quarters? And it's useful to them to have her not be part of Psychor too. Like they shouldn't they should want to make sure she isn't driven back to Psychor 
which yeah. you know is exactly how this episode ends um yeah i it Ugh. always like specifically bothers me that ivanova let this slip through the cracks yeah ivanova it it almost feels like a failure in characterization that ivanova didn't prevent this from happening yeah because like ivanova should like be you know basically like especially with all the kind of administrative work that Ivanova has been doing, keeping the station running, right? Mm-hmm. Like, she absolutely has tons of use for a commercial telepath right now. Like, in negotiations yeah, yeah. with, like, you know, the sexy knife lady, etc. Yeah. Like, she could, like, a, a commercial telepath would be super useful in all of that yeah, shit. Yeah, and, yeah like, there's no reason, no reason at all that Lita should be out in the cold fending for herself the station should be taking care of her and instead she's out here like she's it'd be so easy for them to just be like hey we're gonna hire you at 15 hours of commercial telepath time per week and you'll get your room comped and your and you can get food in the officer's mess you know anything else you're on your own right yeah the fact that like the fact that this happens is like i guess that they're doing this for like i i'm we're like literally through the batch of episodes we're recording tonight. I have not watched anything past it, but it feels like this is like a thing of like we have to have Lita in Psychor for a future thing, but we need to find a way to force it. Yeah, and it's sort of like Jam has wrote himself into a corner or something. That's what yeah. it feels like. Yeah, and I, I get the yeah. like theoretical thing where like where Lita wants to be able to work and not just like yeah. you know. Like, it seems like the station staff might be willing to, like, let her have, like, the the bottom tier quarters and let her kind of just, like, hang around in those or whatever. Like, I get her not wanting just, like, a pure handout that she wants to do some form of work, but they have plenty of work for her if we just, like, thought about it for five seconds. Yeah. yeah. I, I think we're all in agreement that it's it's a load of horse shit that she should be struggling at all. Yeah. Uh, I would also like to raise an objection to the weird pseudo-sexual tension that they seem to, like, hint and tease at between Lita and Zach. Uh, as we have just very amply demonstrated, she has more than enough problems. Uh, <laughs> we don't need to make, to give her a romantic subplot with Zach Allen. Uh, just give her a romantic just, subplot with Ivanova. Come on. Or anyone, like, or a toaster. Like, Zach <laughs> Allen is... With Jakar. There we go. He's just, he's just, yeah, there you go. Zach Allen is the, is, he's just too dumb. She just deserves better than a milk toast version of Garibaldi. Like, Garibaldi, if you removed half the brain cells and replaced them with pudding. Zach Allen is the centrist version of Garibaldi. (laughs) 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 Uh, You know, I'm, I'm, yeah, I I literally like, you know, I feel like Lita would get on well with like a Centauri lady or something, mm-hmm. you know, just like they, they can go, you know, like work out their stuff. I, I like or, yeah. you know, or, may, or maybe maybe a nice Mimbari lady, too. I could see that. I love one of the things I do. I love about this episode is literally every moment Bester is on screen. Oh, yeah. He yeah. is in maximum shit eating grin mode this whole episode because he's only here to fuck with people he's like if i can like score lita on our roles then great if i can fuck around with garibaldi then fucking even better and he does both and he is so so pleased with himself he is like a cat with all the toys at the end of this episode i really love him in that in that like interaction with lita too like where like obviously he's being a jackass and like you know trying to provoke a reaction of like i want your body yeah <laughs> I, I literally think I, I love that that like that is sort of like it's an eminently bastard moment he just wants to be like yeah. he's playing he is absolutely it's very good. doing it yeah but he's more he's more genuine in some ways because he's like yeah alita like they, they fucked you over yeah that's what's super bananas about that scene and makes it really work is he's right. Mm -hmm. Like he is calling out everything they're doing wrong to her. 
and she knows it too. Yeah. Uh, and what's worse even is here's our, we're going to return to our Bester is Magneto analogy. If Bester were Magneto and he didn't work for a would-be fascist secret society, turning her body over to them after death wouldn't be a bad idea at all. Yeah. It's only because Psychor is sketchy AF that it's that it's a really bad idea. Yeah. yeah. But like, he's right. Like, doing the best thing possible for her people, like, that's fine. Like, I get that Bester's... Bester's principal goal is the bettering of his people. Yeah. It's just that his people in his mind are represented by a totalitarian secret society, which is not cool. Like if if we could trust Psychor to you know use that information in like ethical ways with informed consent and all of that, like that would be fine. Instead, like we know that they're going to like do yeah. awful medical experiments yeah. on use it in the, the the least ethical way possible. Right. I really love the scene also where after he gets Garibaldi dragged off, he's just got the biggest shitty grin on his face. It's so good. And then it pans over and Zach Allen is right behind him and he goes, Hi. <laughs> just hi. <laughs> like it's that's the most clever thing that Allen can say there. And it works because you know that that's all he's got. Yeah. I mean, it's also it's also a thing of like you do the high and cut away, and that's just that's less is more, less is yeah. more, yeah. and it's good. I I love I love Bester in this too. Like there's there's like great scenes like that that one where he's just like chatting with the random ass security extra, and he's you know like quoting a Christmas Carol, and he's quoting like a deep fucking cut from a Christmas Carol, and yeah. it's like Bester. Buddy, I have read that book 10 times at this point, and I would not get that reference. <laughs> yeah. Like, you're just doing this to be a jackass. That's yeah. great. He's so, he is just like all the way up his shit, and I'm I'm into it. It's really good. You, you know what? The, um, the station subplot part of this episode reminds me of, like, on, you know, on this rewatch. It reminds me of a soap opera. <laughs> um, I mean, sure, I guess. To me, it has season one shenanigan energy. Yeah, it, it's got like more season one shenanigans. If if it was a soap opera, I would be 90% more invested. <laughs> I think what it is, is melodrama, not, not like soap opera drama. Yeah. Uh, I have two last bits I want to cover on this episode. The uh-huh. first is I legitimately broke out laughing when Sheridan explicitly mentions how mad he is that they're committing war crimes. It's so funny. I died laughing. He says the word. It's like, these are war crimes. And I'm just like, these are war crimes. And I'm like, my first reaction was, are you jealous or angry? I can't tell. (laughs) And then the last bit is, uh, I have a, I know that face. For this episode. Ooh. Oh. Except it's not a face. It's a voice. Yes. We had, don't have a face for him yet, but we do have a voice for uh, Garibaldi's new boss, Edgar's. Uh, he is voiced in this episode and will be appearing in, in, the, in future episodes that we'll be discussing by Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., which is the <laughs> most- the most B5 name I think we've ever had from a guest star who, besides playing King Arthur on two different shows, Biker Mice from Mars and Prince Valiant, which is a fucking bananas pairing right there, uh, is best known as the voice of Alfred on Batman the Animated Series and like fucking everything else after that. He's also done a bunch of other stuff in addition to like a lengthy acting resume in the 70s and 80s. He did a shit ton of voice acting after that, which is why you are almost sure to recognize his voice. If you watch this episode, he was also the voice of Doc Ock in the 90s uh, Spider-Man cartoon. He was on Gargoyles. He was Iron Monger in the 90s Iron Man cartoon uh, and has done just a shit ton of stuff. Wild. But it's, I mean, it's, it's Alfred. That's why you recognize his voice. He's Alfred. Beautiful. 
I have I have one last like plot thing to discuss. Please. Very briefly, hopefully. Which is so one of the things that you gloss over is that um Zach offers Lita a job to scan Garibaldi for him. And she refuses because, yeah. you know, scanning somebody without their consent is unethical, et cetera, et cetera. But can you imagine the like alternate universe in which she went through with that job and we all like and everybody found out exactly what the hell was going on with Garibaldi because Zach is right and if she were to scan him then like a lot of stuff would be <laughs> solved yeah it would be wild but that'd be too easy yeah I also like that there's like a there's a JMS speaks about this subject because people were like she scanned that Minbari's telepath why wouldn't she scan Garibaldi and it's his response was basically like, she didn't know that telepath. And that guy was like holding one of her friends hostage. And meanwhile, Garibaldi's like one of her oldest friends. And that would be a much weirder, more personal invasion. Like people are people. What do you want? They're not consistent. Yeah. Fuck off. This is why this is why I work hourly, not salary. Um, <laughs> because if my boss called me at, you know, 3 a.m. saying, hey, I need a thing later today. Not, I need a thing done right now. It's, I need a thing done later today. No jury on earth would convict me of murder. <laughs> uh, <laughs> to be fair, like, in the next episode, like, Garibaldi's going to take a trip to Mars at the end of the episode. And I would not believe if he was just there to kill kill Edgar. Yeah. We also, we also know... I, this has been a point of discussion on this podcast several times at this point of like, what the fuck did Lita actually do when she interned with the Psychops? And, it, and we find out that she was basically just like a paralegal. Yeah. yeah. So there you go. Yeah. I, I think we I think I think we saw like a JMS speaks on that one. Yeah. Uh, I I feel like we've mentioned that before, yeah. but I, I'm <laughs> I'm guessing that it made its way into the episode like specifically so that people would shut up about it. That sounds yeah. about right. Also, right. this is just a thing I want to call out. Okay, if you're the antagonist in a piece of fiction, you should never trust a protagonist when they say they want to surrender. Yeah. Yeah, well, that, like, yeah I like certainly... the first the first mistake you made was accepting someone's surrender. You don't ever want to get into a piety contest with Delenn, and that's more or less the same point. You don't ever want to get into get into something like that. Also, Delenn has a line when she's like in the laser beam, and she says, "Will you follow me into the fire?" And it's a great line because it reminds me of an Eddie Kingston promo, which is, "Take my hand, we're gonna walk through hell together." Pretty <laughs> much. Like, and if I can link to lead to the bad king, I'm I'm always good for that. <laughs> On that note, I feel like we can't top uh, that particular uh, connection. Let's uh, wrap this one up and yeah, uh, call this episode closed. So next time we are going to be covering episodes 15 and 16 of season four: No Surrender, No Retreat, and the Exercise of Vital Powers. Until next time, be seated. The Babylon Project is an independent production. All views expressed on the show are our own. Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share alike no derivatives license. Recording.